Hey, church family. What an honor to be with you this morning. Please turn with me, if you would, into Romans chapter 6. We're continuing our series called Transformed. We've been talking through the book of Romans, and if you're following along kind of in order, the Apostle Paul started in his first three chapters by telling us we have a major problem, and that is this nature that we inherit from Adam that's depraved. And we cannot save ourselves. And uh, last week, Mike talked about how that all can be remedied through Jesus Christ. By the end of Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul has communicated grace to his audience. And he makes the statement that wherever sin is, grace is there even more. And in Romans chapter 6, the, 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 the chapter opens with this idea of, okay... So if wherever sin is, there's more grace, then should we just sin a lot so that grace can be bestowed upon us a whole lot? And Paul begins this section of Scripture, and I'm going to be talking through Romans chapter 6, verse 1, through the midpoint of Romans chapter 8, right around verse 15 is where I'm going to stop this morning. This is a section of Scripture that the Apostle Paul talks to us about sanctification, We've been justified through Jesus Christ, and now what happens after we're saved? And God's going to use four uh, metaphors to the Apostle Paul to help facilitate our understanding about this process of sanctification. The first metaphor used is the idea of baptism. And then the next metaphor is the idea of slavery. That's the second part of chapter 7. I mean, of of chapter 6. In the first part of chapter 7, the image of marriage is used. And we're not going to talk about that this morning, but it is part of this uh, uh, section of Scripture, and I want you to be familiar with that. By by the end of chapter 7, God uses some imagery from psychology, uh, what we might understand as psychology, to help us understand this new life that we're living, where we're being conformed to the image of Jesus. And then in chapter 8, Paul gives us really the mechanics of how all this is possible. So I hope you'll be following along. That's how I've outlined our talk this morning. With each passage of Scripture I'm using, I'm going to give you a sound bite that I feel like God has told me would be helpful for our church. As I was praying about this and studying for this, God made it very clear to me, we need a message about grace as it relates to sanctification. And if if those things are hard to understand, I'm going to explain them over the course of this lesson. But God's grace is what makes us into the image of Jesus. And we've got to understand that. That has to overwhelm us and encourage us. And I hope you'll be encouraged today. I believe that's what God intends to happen after hearing this sermon this morning. So in Romans chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. Should we sin a lot if... Whenever we sin, there's more grace applied to our lives. Paul says, absolutely not. And God then gives us, through Paul, this metaphor to help us understand this idea of living brand new. He says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God the Father, we too may live a new life. That last part of verse 4 in Romans 6, if you got your Bible, your tablet, or your phone, I hope you'll underline that or highlight it. At baptism, you are buried with Christ and you get to start living a new life. In Jesus Christ, you might not be able to go and, and rewrite the beginning of the story, but you can start from that point of being raised with Jesus to walk a new life, and you can rewrite the end of your story. Jesus died for us so that sin, at the point this new life starts, can no longer reign over us. Jesus died for us so that the life of sin we were living before and sin itself can no longer reign over us. Prayerfully, I feel that Paul, when we get to heaven, will say, everything we do under the old Adam leads to death. In life, everything we do under the old Adam ultimately leads to death. That's the process. Every, good we, every amount of good we try to do, every uh, quest we undertake, every sin we commit... Ultimately, in the life lived under Adam, everything in that life leads to death. And this is the beauty and paradox of the transformational power of the gospel. Every death in Jesus Christ ultimately leads to life. Now, this is, this is what happens at the point of our justification. That's when we're saved. That's when Jesus says, you've got to be born again. That's when we're justified. That's when we're saved. We're buried in baptism and we're, we're raised to walk a new life. But the second piece of this that's really important is over time in the life of us Christians, we're going to be fighting this battle at the point in time we start living our new life in Jesus Christ with our old sinful flesh. And so there's a war that's going to be going on within us. And as we're fighting this war, we're going to realize things in our own self that we need to continually surrender over to God and continually put to death by the power and the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the new life. That we understand the things about us now that we need to put to death and surrender to Jesus Christ. And that's the process of our sanctification. That we've been raised to walk in new life with Jesus through baptism. And from that day forward, we're now aware of the old sinful stuff within us that we need to consistently put to death by surrendering it to Jesus. That's sanctification. Friends, that's the best and most profoundly good news you'll ever receive in life. That you have the opportunity for a fresh start and a new way to live. I was doing some research for this, and I, and, I, and I was reading about a guy. His name's Deion Sanders. How many of you have heard of Deion Sanders? Those of you that know me know that I don't know hardly anything about sports. So you also know when I start using a sports metaphor, there's a good chance I'm going to get something wrong. So if I do, just forgive that, okay? The way I understand it, Deion Sanders is the only human being on planet Earth to have played in a World Series game and also play in a Super Bowl game. As far as what the life we live here on earth in the flesh has to offer, Deion Sanders had achieved it all. Money, fame, significance, and status. 
And Deion Sanders says in his testimony that he hit his rock bottom moment in life when he was playing for the Dallas Cowboys. And I thought, man, if anything would ruin a man's sense of their own well-being, it would be playing for the Dallas Cowboys. Can I get an amen? Okay. Well, I got some Saints fans in the house. Okay, so the rest of that sentence is, well, I was playing for the Dallas Cowboys and we won a Super Bowl. Any Cowboys fans in the house? Okay, two guys over here, right? All right. All right, I I see you over there. Um, So he said, we won the Super Bowl and I was the first guy out of the locker room after the game. Then we go to a press conference and I was the first one to leave the press conference. And I got home and my wife said, Dion, surely you got something to do. Is there a party downstairs or a place you can go to celebrate this victory? And he said, I told her that I just felt empty inside. I had achieved what most people would argue was the pinnacle experience in the sports world. And I felt like my life was unfulfilled. The next day, he says he woke up with this same feeling. He gets on the phone. He buys a $275,000 Lamborghini, thinking maybe that would fill that missing piece He said, I still felt empty and I still felt alone. I still felt like my life wasn't worth anything, didn't have meaning. Deion Sanders says, it wasn't until I surrendered to Jesus Christ and started a brand new life that things started to make sense. And if that's the point of our salvation, which the Apostle Paul starts right there, that new life in Christ, he wants to take us to an understanding of how that life is supposed to be lived And the theme here this morning, church, is grace. If we follow along Paul's logic, he's going to end up talking to us about slavery in Romans chapter 6, verse 16. The Bible says this, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient, that word's very important. It's not accidental. It's not occasional. It's through deliberate, calculated, premeditated obedience. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. The key here is whoever you choose to select as your master and obey, that person is the one who will be in charge of you. For the Apostle Paul and for God himself, there is no possibility for a human being to be Lord over his own life and therefore free. A person as Lord over their own life and free to do as they please does not exist in the world God created. We are all slaves to someone. So it's not a matter of whether or not you're going to bow to a master. But it's a matter of to which master you will select to bow to. It's not about whether or not you're going to bow to a master. Every single person on the sound of my voice will obey something. And you got two choices. You can choose to obey sin, which leads to death. Or you, you can choose to obey righteousness, which leads to life. But after you've been raised to walk in a brand new life, the choice is yours. 
Up to that moment in time, you simply don't have the capacity to choose, either because you can't see it or because a power greater than you does not dwell within you to facilitate your ability to make the selection to choose the way of righteousness. We see this playing out perfectly in the, in the story of Adam and Eve. They're in a garden and they have complete freedom. There's only one thing that God asked these guys not to do. And that's eat of one particular tree in the middle of a vast, what we can only imagine as being a very beautiful garden. But in the quest to be Lord of their own lives, Adam and Eve decide they're going to take matters into their own hands. But the decision to take matters into their own hands does not make them more free. It just enslaves them to a different master. And that's the nature of the life that we live. We have the option to be enslaved to the master that we choose to follow. Should we choose to surrender to Jesus Christ and follow the way of righteousness, he will guide us into life everlasting. At the conclusion of chapter 6, the Apostle Paul wants his audience to understand that the road you choose pays you a dividend for your efforts. You'd know this verse. This is Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The Bible says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, before we get to this next slide, I want to I inform you about the, the, the meaning behind the word wages. Paul uses in Romans 6 and 7 a lot of language that would be really commonly used if people were talking about warfare. We don't have time to go into it all today, but in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the word wages is a, is a Greek word that would have been used to describe payments made in installments over time, paid to a soldier for a particular army. That's different than the idea of a lump sum being paid all at once at one particular moment in time for the person's efforts. What Paul's audience would have understood is that his intent behind this verse is that when we participate in sinful behavior, we start building a balance in our spirit of conviction, condemnation, guilt, and misery. But it doesn't happen all at once. This is the type of wage over time that builds up slowly and at the point of our death delivers one fell swoop to end us. It's what we earn as a result of our quest to follow after our sinful nature. But if we'll surrender to Jesus Christ and we'll allow Him to help us start a new life, one with an ending that He can write then we're given a, a perfect and beautiful gift called grace. So this is where this discussion becomes really, really important. Because for the Christian, one of the greatest temptations is to excuse sin based on the grace of God. But it's clear from our reading that God's grace is freedom from sin. That we can choose to follow a master who will lead us on pathways of righteousness as opposed to follow our sinful nature which leads us to death. 
God's grace should, should and does free us from sin. It doesn't free us for sin. Now, I want to I I make a case uh, that I feel like most Christians fall into one of two camps. There are Christians who are raised to walk in new life. And what they find is that the way of righteousness feels very difficult. And I want to emphasize the word feels. And I want to remind you that not everything you feel is as real as you think it is. Okay? So Christians are raised to walk in new life with Jesus Christ. And the way of righteousness feels difficult. And so we fall into the group that the the apostle admonishes at the first part of Romans 6. Should we just sin more because the more I sin, the more grace I get and just call it good? And he would say, absolutely not. God's grace is freedom from that sinful stuff, not freedom for it. All too often, however, God's people excuse their own sinfulness because of the grace God so freely bestows upon them. And the scandal of grace is that God's consistently willing to bestow His grace on those people in spite of their making excuses and abuse of His grace. Friends, that's the beauty of grace. You can't out the ocean of God's grace. You can't out-excuse the ocean of God's grace because you're not bigger than the God who created you. Amen? But we're talking about sanctification here. Now I want to go back to that idea of Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, and this idea of new life. <clears throat> what happens when we are brought into new life in Jesus Christ, not only is the old us put to death, but over time we realize parts of us that resemble that old man, that sinful nature. And it's those parts of us that we need to surrender to Jesus Christ. And as we surrender, as we put to death those parts of ourselves, we become more sanctified, more conformed into the image of Jesus. But it gets very, very difficult to take those nasty, sinful tendencies in us and surrender them to Jesus Christ. This is where Paul ends up in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 15. He says, the good stuff that I want to do, that's the stuff I'm not able to do. But the stuff I hate, the sinful stuff, my flesh, my sinful desire, all of the stuff I don't want to do, that's the stuff I do. Paul here gives us a kind of a clear adult picture of what lots of us experience as parents or grandparents. I want you to imagine a room with lots of toys in it and a four-year-old son or grandson in the room with lots of toys. And on one table in that room, there is a box of matches. And you're in the room and you're watching this person play and they're having an awesome time, but you realize you've got to step out and either answer the phone or make a call or, or, or handle nature as it calls, okay? But because you're a very wise and, and capable caregiver, you know that the one thing in that room, that four or five-year-old, should not touch is what? 
the box of matches. So before you go, you tell the child, I'm going to be right back. I got to step out for just a second. But before I go, I want you to know, whatever you do, do not touch this box of matches right here. That box. All right, buddy, I'll, 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 I'm going to step out. I'll see you in a second. When the parent leaves, it's the first thing that kid goes to touch. It's the box of matches. He's curious about the box of matches. I don't care how good you think your son or your daughter or your grandson or your granddaughter is. If you tell them that in a room and then you leave the room, they're going over to that box of matches. They're going to grab it. And when Paul makes this statement, that's what he's saying about himself. And in Romans 7, he gives us this long dialogue about the law and how the law not only reveals our sinful nature, but sometimes even incites sin. Well, how can the law reveal our sinful nature and incite sin? The law says, don't touch the matchbook. And then we humans are kind of like, okay, okay. All right, I'm not going to touch the matches. Oh, man. Oh, man. That felt good. No, it didn't. Yeah. Yes, it did. No, no, it didn't. I'm not going to touch it again, though. I'm not going to touch it again. Oh, man. The things we hate and don't want to do, those are the things that we do. And the things we want to do that we know we shouldn't do, those are the things that we don't end up doing. That's our sinful nature. So, so up to this point, I've been, I've been describing this whole process uh, from this idea of we're, walked, we're raised to walk in new life, new life, our life starts brand new, we make a selection to choose which master to obey at that point. We can pursue righteousness and surrender our old junk to God and die to self daily. That's a concept he's going to revisit in chapter 12. And by choosing to serve the right master, we're... We're walking on pathways of righteousness. Or we can allow our sinfulness to well up in us and, and choose to obey our sin nature. And I'm using the idea of choice a lot. But I, I want to remind you, friends, that it is the grace of God that empowers us to do the pathway of righteousness. It's the grace of God that empowers us to surrender. It's the grace of God that that pulls on our hearts to lead us to God. Human beings, in other words, shouldn't get the credit. And so often we just feel like, well, Trent, based on what you're saying, I just need to surrender more. I just need to try harder. I just need to put more effort into it. That's like saying, I just need to... Work on not touching the box of matches. I know where it is. I know what table it sits on. I know what color it is. I know what it looks like. I know even what it feels like because I've touched it a few times, but I just need to stop thinking about the stinking matches. And what am I doing as I'm telling myself not to touch and not to think about the matches? What am I thinking about? I'm thinking about the matches. It's like the more I try not to think about the matches and not to touch the matches and not to go close to the matches or not to imagine what the matches feel like, the more I try, the more I'm consumed with thinking about the matches, the harder it is not to touch them. And so what, I do, what do I do? I do what modern psychology tells me to do. I think happy thoughts. I'm in the room. The matches are on the table. I'm not thinking about matches. They're so 
close and I know what table they're on and I know what they look like, but I'm just going to not think about them. I'm going to think about sunrise. I'm going to think about cool breezes. And I'm going to think about ice cream with whipped cream and cherries on top. And when I come to out of that vision, do you know what's in my hand? It's the matches. The matches are in my hand again. No matter how hard I try, that sinful nature in me leads me to those stinking matches. And we in Christ feel that and just think we got to try harder. You guys, it is not about trying harder. It's about surrendering more. Trying harder is kind of, kind of sounds like doing life better. And, and life leads to death. But surrender sounds like death, yielding to win. That sounds like death to life. That's the new model for living. And this is what happens to God's people. And I, I felt God just really hit me with this very hard as I was preparing for this sermon. You guys are just like me. We find that matchbook or matchbox in our hand all the time. All the time. And we start to feel really ashamed about that and and convicted about that and condemned about that. God's people find find the matchbook in their hand and they start to feel very ashamed about it or condemned about it or convicted about it. And God wants you to know right now that if you find that matchbook in your hand and you've already been raised to walk in new life with Jesus Christ, that having that matchbook in your hand is not, I repeat, is not about your salvation. Having the matchbook is not about your salvation. Having the matchbook in your hand is about your sanctification. Is about you being conformed more into the image of Jesus Christ. It's not about you losing your salvation if you are thinking happy thoughts about Saints football and Drew Brees and Sean Payton staying for another couple of years and us building the defense and us winning the Super Bowl. And no matter how hard you try, you're going to find them in your hand. That's not about your salvation. What that is about is another area of your life that you need to surrender to Jesus Christ so you can become more like Him. That's sanctification. It's not about salvation. It's about sanctification. When the matchbook's in my hand, God says, Trent, there's another area that you got to surrender to me. Put it to death. Rewrite the ending for that part of your life and be conformed more into the image of Jesus Christ. That's grace. That's grace. When God tells us that after we've been raised to walk in new life with Him, that there is now therefore no condemnation for us, do you think it could be possible that what that means is that after we've been raised to walk in new life with Jesus Christ, that there is now therefore no condemnation for us? That's exactly what God wants us to know. Christians do not have to walk around feeling guilty and condemned and wretched and miserable because I accidentally found this matchbook in my hand again or even deliberately found it in my hand again. That's the beauty and majesty of grace. 
Paul says, who's going to save me from this wretched man I am? Jesus Christ. And there is no condemnation for me because I was buried with Him, raised to walk in new life, now by His grace and following Him as my Master. I get new wages of grace and righteousness. All I got to do to stay on the path is surrender. And I got to live in this new strength of no condemnation empowered in me by the Spirit of God. You live like that, the enemy cannot win. He can't do it. And not only are you no longer condemned, but you're given a place where you belong now. You're given a home. You're given a family. You're given a dad who will never... Listen, listen. This is... You're given a dad who will never, ever leave you or ever forsake you. Yeah, but what if I got that matchbook? Never leave or forsake might actually mean never, ever leave or forsake. Not condemn might actually mean not condemn. Guys, that's grace. That's God's grace. God wants His church to know, man, that's what my grace is all about. There's now therefore no condemnation of those who are walked to raise up a new life and given a new start and make a new selection, follow Jesus and get paid a new salary and live in a new way of surrender, all empowered by God's grace. There is human decision-making involved And I can't escape that language, but the decision is to die. The decision is to surrender. The decision is to yield. And in giving my life, I gain it. In yielding, I win. In surrender, I'm victorious. That's the beauty and majesty and power of God's grace. I need the church to say amen right there, because if you're not getting it, I'm going another hour. Okay. All right. Sin, friends, abducts you and enslaves you. God's grace, not because of anything you've done, not because of one thing you've done, God's grace adopts you and saves you and erases condemnation from your life. And you can live in victory because of that. Before chapter 8, the Spirit's only mentioned five times in the book of Romans. After chapter 8, the Spirit's only mentioned nine times. But in chapter 8, Spirit occurs 21 times. The thing we're certain of is that your new life in Jesus Christ is a life lived through surrender of the Spirit and surrender to the Spirit. God's shown us that in Jesus, He has taken personal responsibility. Listen to this. God has shown us that in Jesus Christ, he himself has taken has taken personal responsibility for our salvation and also for our sanctification. God's responsible for you. So let him have the responsibility. Surrender. Let him lead and he will not disappoint. We live in a world today where pop religion tells us that we can do something for God. Sociologists tell us that we can do something for others. 
Psychology tells us we can do something for ourselves. But the gospel says that God has done everything for us. That's the message of Romans 6 through 8.15. If you've got your Bibles, I think this is all summed up by Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 through 8. I'm going to read this to you, and then I'm going to wrap and give you guys an opportunity to respond if someone has a need this morning. I'm abbreviating here, but if you've got a Bible, you need to write this down so you can review it later or highlight it or earmark it in your mind so that you can look it up later. <clears throat> this is to someone here this morning that misunderstands grace and is feeling condemned and convicted because they found that matchbook in their hand time and time again. And God's saying, just give it to me. Just surrender it to me. He's not saying you're condemned. He's asking for your surrender. Somebody needs to know, Exodus 3, 7 through 8, I have seen the misery of my people. If that's you this morning with the matchbook in your hand, God wants you to know He has seen your misery. I have heard them crying out. If anything can bring a person to their knees, it's finding that matchbook in my hand over and over and over again and feeling helpless to do anything about it and crying out to God, please take this matchbook from me. God says to you this morning, I am concerned about your suffering. And in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 8, he says, so I have come down. Listen to this. So I have come down to rescue you. Friends, God wants to rescue you. He wants you to have a new start and select a new master and make a new salary by living in a new state of surrender, harnessing a new strength where there's no condemnation because you are in the family of God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. And we thank you so much for grace. God, there's no way I can help but botch a message of grace. Because it is so unfathomable. It's so scandalous. It's so amazing. God, there isn't condemnation for us who are in your son, Jesus. But I'm afraid Christians are walking around feeling condemned. Because the good stuff they want to do, they're not able to do. And the bad stuff they don't want to do, that's the stuff they're finding out they do. And they feel wretched. But you want them to know that they are not condemned. You want them to just surrender more to you. God, I ask that if any are here that need to to surrender more, that they would be moved to, to make those decisions today. God, if there are any who are carrying that burden of finding that matchbook in their hand over and over and over again, you want them to know that you see their misery. You hear their cry. You're moved with compassion at their suffering. And you are on your way. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray.